Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today, nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario. Great episode for you today, talking all about museums, in particular, the McDonald Stewart Art Gallery, also known as the Guelph Art Gallery, which is located on the University of Guelph campus there, of course, in Guelph, Ontario. And it is the subject of a new book by Judith Nasby entitled The Making of a Museum. And Judith was the director of the gallery for over 40 years, and she has told the story of the institution from its origins in 1916 up through her retirement and the growth of this art gallery. And she tells the story through memoir, through her experiences. So there are some very entertaining anecdotes in the book, some great stories of her time, while also going back to those first days and getting this gallery off the ground. And Guelph is a unique situation. If you've never been to Guelph, it's about an hour to 90 minutes west of Toronto, a medium-sized city, not quite close enough to Toronto to be a commuter town in the same way as some other communities west of the city. And for a long time, the University of Guelph was best known for its agricultural education programs. Of course, it used to be an agricultural school exclusively. And so in the book, Judith talks about the challenge of bringing an art gallery into that space, into that environment, ensuring that culturally the gallery fit with the culture of the university and the culture of the community. It's, it's a really fascinating tale that is told in a compelling way through these personal stories, which I think it's just a great way to tell a story of an institution is connected to the people who were there. And certainly Judith was there for so long and that she has a, a ton of stories, a ton of experience, and is probably the best person to be able to tell this story. So I was fortunate enough to talk with her a little bit earlier. So let's get right into that conversation with Judith Nasby. All right. And Judith Nasby joins me now from South Carolina. Judith, how are you doing today? Uh, excellent. Thanks. It's nice and warm here. Which is, is not uh, pretty much anywhere in Canada right now. Uh, so <laughs> you, you are good on the weather front. It's especially not warm in Guelph, Ontario. No, uh, it's quite cold in Guelph, which of course is the focus of making of a museum. It talks about your experience and the long history of the McDonald Stewart Art Center, the Art Gallery of Guelph, of which you are the former director and curator of that museum. So Judith, could you just uh, describe to me before we get into some of the specifics of the book, Making of a Museum, why you wanted to tell this story and how your personal experience with the gallery influenced the way you wrote the book? Well, I, d I decided that uh, there are many books on uh institutions like the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts, Art Gallery of Ontario, Vancouver Art Gallery, ROM, I frank, quite frankly thought were rather boring. And I thought that we needed a book on how a mid-sized city's uh, public art gallery was created, which is a very different story. And it turned out to be a, a more memoir than uh, history because I was there for 45 years. I began, at, if you can unbelievable, hired as the University of Guelph curator at age 22, even before I graduated from McMaster, and stayed there because I saw this thing develop. And uh, eventually, it uh, turned into uh, 
uh, I don't want to brag too much, but a, a leading uh, internationally recognized uh, public art gallery uh, by the time I left, uh, which was in uh, 2013. Could you describe then the, the museum and the gallery for anyone who hasn't had the opportunity to go? I, I think for a lot of people who might be listening in bigger cities like Toronto, Montreal, or even Ottawa, you know, we, we have those larger uh, national type institutions, but what would a mid-sized city art gallery look like to somebody who's going in? Well, Guelph is about, when the gallery was established, it was on the Ontario Agricultural College over a hundred years ago. It started just in the small hallways and uh, the professors hung artworks. They bought Tom Thompson's largest painting, which I'll show you an excerpt, which is on the cover of the book, The Drive. Uh, he completed this painting uh, just before he died. And uh, as a matter of fact, the sketch is on permanent display at the Art Gallery of Ontario. So, so this started the whole thing. And eventually, uh, in 1975, uh, we were able to renovate a uh, first consolidated school in Ontario called McDonald Consolidated School, which has its own important history uh, in the education system of Ontario. And a large building, about 30,000 square feet, much larger than you would expect in a city of about 30,000 people. Not, no, I guess 100,000 at that time. So the story is that four public bodies got together. The university, the city, the County of Wellington and the Upper Grand District School Board and decided to found a public art gallery to serve the whole region. This has compelled me to start the story because I really think that, uh, I don't know if there's another example of four public bodies actually agreeing on anything. Um, Certainly uh, in Guelph, the city and the county always have trouble agreeing on anything. So it's a kind of a unique situation. So this led to funding from, incidentally, I know you're from uh, more east than I am, Guelph. McDonald Stewart Foundation uh, gave a naming grant to renovate this building. Uh, so it's a first-class internationally uh, renovated uh, public art gallery, you know, capable of building a a large collection. It's on the side of the uh, adjacent to the University of Guelph, uh, serving the in, entire region. So it's a historic building in 1904. So that can give people sort of an idea of what it might look like. The other thing is uh, we were able to develop a sculpture park around it. Uh, so we now have the largest and most significant uh, sculpture park uh, with 40 works at a public uh, gallery in the country recognized uh, particularly for uh, public commissions for Canadian artists. So perhaps that gives people a little better idea of what the institution actually is and looks like. What is the purpose of having this type of an institution, this type of well-renowned institution with that size of a collection, the book profiles, the growth of the collection, you just mentioned the sculpture park, as well. What's the benefit of having that in a city like Guelph? And then what would the challenges be that might not exist for some galleries in larger urban centers? Well, it was interesting that um, a lot of it grew through serendipity and uh, connections that uh, evolved into something that as director and curator, I could act very quickly and was not burdened by hate to say, uh, endless committee meetings and bureaucracy. So 
when I went there, I had a collection of 150 works to look after in 1968. And when I retired, we had over 9,000. So it was my uh, ambition from day one to uh, create a very good um, collection uh, that would uh, serve both the academic needs of the university, uh, the school board, um, people's general interest in the community. After all, people had to go to Toronto or they'd go to New York uh, to see um, artworks. You know, we could we could provide that. There was no competition, uh, in, in, you know, in the immediate area. So we had kind of a, a different role from an institution that is among many in a larger institution, in a larger city. One of the things that strikes me uh, is the timing of the creation of the museum. You're looking at 1916, uh, the, the start of this idea, the, the growth of Amer- or, excuse me, of Canadian patriotic associations in the 1920s through the 1930s. That initial growth, that time during the interwar period, as you mentioned, Guelph is still at that point known for agriculture. I would say the school is probably still best known potentially for agriculture and its agricultural programs. But when you look back at the origins of the museum, given the societal circumstances at the time, war, 1920s, growth of patriotism, to where the museum is today, how do you draw the line there? Is it a straight line? Because it strikes me from where the book concludes as to where the museum is now. It doesn't really resemble much of those initial first days uh, over 100 years ago when the idea was put forth and things started to come together. So so how do you tell that story in a way that is cohesive and create the narrative that, that makes sense from where it began to where it is now? Well, I start with the story of the purchase of the Tom Thompson painting. The, this man... Professor O.J. Stevenson. In 1916, he said that the agricultural students uh, needed culture. Um, They came off the farm, so he started a Canadian lecture series. He had famous artists, uh, uh, literary people come and speak. Uh, He decided to buy this painting and others, which were hung in the dining halls and in halls, other hallways. Incidentally, I wanted to call the book History is Memoir uh, from a hallway to a gallery, the making of a museum, but it was like two, like three, just too much of a mouthful. <laughs> so my editor, um, Philip Shirconi at McGill Queens University Press said, well, History is Memoir is sort of like a category, even though I love that title. And it is really, and this is what this book's all about. From a hallway to a gallery sounded sort of boring. The making of a museum, because it is a museum collection, I didn't want to say the making of a of a art gallery, because after all, there are places like the power plant, which is like a German Kunsthall, but it does not have a collection. There's dealers that do not have, uh, there are galleries that do not have collections. So that's how we settled on the title, because that is what O.J. Stevenson started. He started the Ontario Agricultural College Collection of Art with one of the most significant paintings that Tom Thompson ever painted. He bought it $500 with new newspapers that the students gathered and sold and made money to, great, to cre- create that $500 budget that bought that painting. So they wanted culture at that time. So I traced that initiative 
through the founding colleges. There's uh, McDonald Institute, which is HOMEC, the Vet College, which joined the the the, uh, the Agricultural College in, in 1922, right up to 1964, when the University of Guelph was established. And I do make a point at that time that that's shortly after when I came, the university was called the Cow College, or worse, Mugu. And I was there at that time. So Bill Weingart came as the president. He was a metallurgist. They brought in somebody entirely different, although he did grow up in a, in a farm in Hagersville, Ontario. He turned out to love art and actually later built quite a significant collection. So I had the right president at the time. So we also had the right dean um, named Murdo McKinnon, and his job was to bring the arts to the campus so that we could sort of defeat this sort of image and also bring a more balanced program to the university. So I became part of that, and that's where, even though I started showing in the most impossible hallway in the arts building with light streaming in, I had no uh, lighting uh, in the ceiling, so I took out the bulbs, ceiling bulbs, and used clip-on lights, broke the fire regulations, and we could <laughs> spotlights on a brick wall where we brought in the most amazing art exhibitions because the touring, uh, touring guys, they had no idea how terrible the facilities were. I just persuaded them. And then I started calling it the University of Guelph Art Gallery, and here I was, 23 years old, and we got funding from the Canada Council and the Ontario Arts Council because I always thought they'll never come to look at this space. So fortunately, the Canadian Institute of Conservation in Ottawa, Dr. Stolo made an amazing discovery that natural light damages artworks. While anybody who's put a watercolor on a wall near a window could tell you that without a lot of research. So that was my key to say this space is terrible and I persuaded the president and the university librarian to let me move to the main floor of the library which did cause some some friction but generally they were happy about it if I followed all the rules so I could see with I mean this is a time when a young person would go somewhere else I mean really I mean I had such terrible facilities but I had wonderful support from the upper echelon so I kept going, and then 1975, we um, made a connection with the Madonna Stewart Foundation in Montreal through David Stewart, and he became interested in saving the McDonald Consolidated School. Now, that's a very interesting history on its own. It was a tobacco company, but he was able to sell it, tobacco products, into the U.S., when at a time when he could make lots of money and the Americans couldn't do this. So this allowed him to build up his, his business to a really large extent. He was an interesting man because uh, he didn't smoke and he was a philanthropist. So that's why all over Montreal, you see McDonald everywhere. Hmm. And David McDonald Stewart, he inherited this company and he wished to continue this and he wished to to preserve the, the first consolidated schools that were supported with money from Sue McDonald to save them. So 
he gave money to restore. There was one in New Brunswick, there's one in um, Prince Edward Ireland, there's one in Halifax, and there's one in Guelph. And that spurred the whole thing. Otherwise, it would never have happened. It, my book talks about serendipity and sort of good luck and these things unfolding, which I think is the key to make things happen in smaller institutions, because you just don't have access to large amounts of money um, or, you know, wealthy donors just come forward unless something like this happens. So that's all explained in my book. When the museum space, when you got that space from the the awful location with the natural light into the library, how did that change the way the museum presented material? And how did that change potentially the relationship with students who were uh, around, obviously going to the library at the, the University of Guelph? Just how did that change the exposure of it? And once you get into that space and you have that immediate connection to students, people are, are coming around probably more often. Did that change the way in which you conceived of the exhibitions or the art, the, the particular pieces that you wanted to, to put on? Like just, just how influential was the space to the overall direction of the collection? Well, of course, you know, we're having thousands of, of students who were seeing our exhibitions. And I might add that all through this, I was buying artworks to build a collection of Canadian art uh, through alumni support and, and donors and also from federal and provincial grants. But I was also running a very active temporary exhibition program uh, that uh, was curated by myself or staff, or we brought in touring exhibitions. So that was active 12 months of the year. So the students had an, an enormous opportunity uh, to inadvertently um, be influenced, whether they wanted to or not, as long as they <laughs> looked at the artwork when they went by. Uh, so, you know, it's sort of sneaky way to, you know, get people involved. Yes. And so it, that initiative, of course, extended over to why um, I wanted to have a sculpture park because the sculpture park, the students walk through it. It's the direct access from uh, the city to downtown. And it, again, it gives, you know, 24 hour access to immediately to artworks. Uh, so that kind of philosophy continued with the idea of having a sculpture park. The gallery from day one, uh, free admission, very important always free admission so that students could just drop in on their way to classes or look, stay for 10 minutes, leave. How did the relationship with the students go? Like, what was the reaction from students to the art? Did, did you get people in, uh, you, you say inadvertently, but what, what was the initial feedback? Did, did students express outwardly an appreciation for what was going on? Were they maybe confused initially as to why all these art pieces were here in the library? Like, just what was their initial reaction? What was the relationship like building it with students over the years? You know, I say it worked quite well. Um, like, we were very evangelical. I mean, we were wanted to convert people only devoted to hockey. I mean, you're just, you're young. And, and uh, so one of our projects was to have the great Aggie art vote. So we picked four, uh, three artworks, uh, two of them abstract, and one, um, it was a, a realistic painting of a, um, a seacoast with, you know, beautiful waves coming in. Uh, 
and we had all kinds of educational material and we gave uh, ballots out to the agricultural students. And we said that the, the one that had the most votes we were going to buy for the collection. So do you want to guess which one was purchased? Which, which one had the most votes? Well, I, well, based on the agricultural students, right? You, you, you sort of guess, but. <laughs> well, it wasn't a farm. I mean, at least it was uh, a seacoast. So yes, it, it got the most votes. So, so we, we bought it, but I mean, it did expose them to the whole idea of artworks and it carried on um, Professor Stevenson's whole idea that the students should be involved. Another project I had, the chief librarian um, left a, a fund uh, to buy art and she wanted uh, one student representing each of the founding colleges to be on a committee with myself uh, to select the artwork. So we did that for a number of years, which again was another uh, truly sincere initiative among you know, the faculty and the administrators to, to bring the arts into this environment that you know was known mostly for uh, agriculture and veterinary science, and uh, you know ag ec and all of these other things. So, how does it translate then to the wider community of Guelph or to, to folks in the region who might want to come see the art? One of the things that I have found certainly in Ottawa, and, and I'm an adjunct at, at Carleton that does have its own art gallery as well that I've been lucky enough to take classes to and visit a few times on my own, but I often wonder of, of how accessible is that to the community outside the university uh, where people tend to not go to university campuses unless they have a direct reason to go, like a meeting or they're going to a lecture or something. And even then, I think it's rare for people who aren't part of the university community to always engage with things on campus. So, so how did you bridge that gap and how did you reach out to the community and try to get individuals who aren't part of the university, the academic community, into see the collections? Well, that was one of the initiatives with the sculpture park. People come and take wedding photographs there. They have visitors that come to see them. You know, there isn't a lot of attractions in Guelph, so it's become quite a major attraction. And we made a point that uh, the sculptures are, are permanent. They're either bronze or they can be stone or, you know, perhaps stainless steel, aluminum, everything is very sturdy. So people climb on the sculptures, et cetera, et cetera. You know, they really sort of enjoy it. People come for picnics. So that was sort of my key uh, for, you know, engaging the just broad public. Now, some of them come in the building, some of them don't come in the building. We also, of course, have uh, school tours. And we at one point we had a touring art van that went out to uh, all of the schools in Wellington County taking small exhibitions of that initiative. The other thing that um, I'm particularly, I think particularly proud of during my reign there is that we did hundred over 150 exhibitions by artists from the region, many of them giving them their first exhibition, often supported by a purchase and a catalog. And that is part of the overall mandate of the institution to um, serve the, the creative community, as well as, of course, showing the collection at various times. So that's, and of course, you know, people know somebody, they're obviously coming into the gallery. Or 
We also have devotees for Tom Thompson's to drive. They come in anytime it's on view. They come in and bow down before it. You know, it's a, <laughs> it's a kind of an icon. Yes, uh, certainly is. I mean, obviously, I mean, all, Tom Thompson. You, know, you, right? use all, you have limited budget for marketing, but you just sort of use all these activities that you can to engage people. And I think at one point in my career, I said, you know, I mean, I do go to the Gulf Storm games now. I never thought I would in retirement, but you know, it's fine. I mean, I'm not. At one point, I stopped. I, you know, people that want to go to the hockey game, not interested in the gallery. Well, fine. I'm going to put my energies in the people who are interested in the arts. Yeah. Uh, totally reasonable, <laughs> right? Yeah, like, if that, that's who you you're trying to so get. Yeah. You only have so much time. Yeah. So, how much would you say, though, the the efforts of the museum over the year? Years. I mean, this book, right? It, it is, as you say, it's it's memoir as well. Like, how much of the museum is you, and what what's there is a reflection of what you prioritized, and, and just really reflects your sensibilities about not only the artwork itself, the things that are in the collection, but just the the placement of it, the geography of the space, the way things are laid out in the museum. Just you know, how much of it is a, a personal reflection of you through your career? Well, I would say, you know, it can't help not be uh, with a staff of four, and I was there for 45 years. But uh, I also had a curator working with me all through those times. I had four excellent curators who um, curated many of the temporary exhibitions and put their mark on the gallery. Um, You know, we also had a a significant group of volunteers who uh, ran the gallery shop and did some of the school tours. Some of them stayed for 20 years. So, you know, they became kind of the face of the community. So I, I would say that it was a kind of an evolutionary thing. It was a team approach. And, you know, we had an op- open palette, which was uh, wonderful. And I always had, a, 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 you know, I never had a trustee meeting that I didn't it's horrible to say this to other other directors that you know I actually enjoyed because uh, there was a few. There was one uh, representative from the county who told me his cows look better than the artwork, so I had to sort of deal with that one to handle that one. But uh, generally, you know, they were all supportive of that we were meeting the mandate, the objectives that of this how this institution was established. It was established very carefully with very careful objectives so that it was clear. You know, I think that's a big part of it. Well, Judith, you know, you're going to get emails now from other other people who work in museums are going to be mad that you've had positive experience with it, with directors. And all no, I know they're going to be intensely too. jealous. No, I, I just don't give them my email, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I, I'm curious, is, again, the book is called Making a Museum. Or making of a museum, excuse me. And just how hard is it for, if you had to summarize that part of it, the building a museum, building a collection from where it was when you started to where it is now, what's the biggest challenge to it? And for any young people who might be doing public history programs or thinking about museology going, going into this field, what are some of the challenges that they should expect? And would you encourage somebody at this point now in 2022, if they were interested in museology, to want to pursue this path in a medium-sized institution like you worked in? 
Oh, I would definitely say so because there's more opportunity to um, gain a, a very wide range of experience. Uh, I mean, I, we've, I've mentored hundreds of students and so have my, my curators and my other staff members. Many of them have gone on and found places. I would defi definitely say so. To answer your other question, I think, uh, you know, anybody that's working in, uh, in you know, nonprofit um, organizations, you know, where you're dealing with donors and volunteers and, and artists, you're always on tender hooks about, you know, having to solve those minor little problems before they become big ones. And, you know, it, it, I mean, it's not any difference in being, a, I'm sure, a CEO. It's just you know, in business. But, you know, there, there is that aspect to it that, you, you, you know, you always have to be watching uh, what's happening. So, I mean, I think to be fair, it's not, it, it, you know, it's not always easy. Sometimes you make mistakes and you have to try to recover them and carry on for the good of the institution. That's particularly the job of the director. I mean, <laughs> you can go and be curators and they don't have to worry about that or, or be educators to be uh, you know, communications officers or things. But that's a particular role of the director, I think, have to mm -hmm. deal with those situations. And, you know, we all know the history of that in North America. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, yeah. Great, great challenge. Yes. Yeah. No, no question about it. Uh, so you mentioned that you had uh, the, the book is full of some really uh, sort of entertaining, fun anecdotes. Uh, you have some excerpts there. Is there anything that you particularly want to share with uh, with the audience uh, right out of the book? In 19 in 1973, uh, I co-curated an exhibition of very important international art that we borrowed from uh, leading um, dealers in New York. And we were able to have it sent. Uh, we had money to have it sent. And it was shown in the library. So you can kind of sort of get the idea. Uh, so the gallery, uh, we did not have enough funds to ship the works back to New York. So I rented a large Pontiac station wagon in early December. With my husband's help, I loaded it with the artworks and we set off for New York City at 4 a.m. After a 10 hour drive, we were able to make a delivery to the Paula Cooper Gallery. On departure from the gallery, the tailgate window of the station wagon suddenly jammed open and to complicate the situation, it began to snow. We quickly, quickly checked into our seedy Holiday Inn on West 57th Street and descended down through eight levels of underground parking. On the lowest level, we parked in the darkest corner and jammed the rear bumper against the back wall. No one was the wiser that thousands of dollars of New York contemporary art were within arm's reach. The next day, we began delivering to various artist studios, including one in an alley off Canal Street in the Bowery. We pulled up to the curb and encountered three drunks who erupted into a serious fistfight beside our vehicle. The entire street consisted of 19th century warehouses with massive sliding metal doors. While guarding the vehicle, we found the address and began banging on the huge metal door without success. Finally, we roused the artist by throwing stones at an upper window. After completing all of our deliveries, the tailgate window of the station wagon mysteriously repaired itself. 
We decided to stay in New York for the weekend to visit museums and found a parking facility in a converted 19th century commercial building. We entered through a narrow doorway into a freight elevator that took cars to the upper levels. The attendant took our keys and asked how long we were staying. We said three days. On returning to our vehicle on Monday, we found it filthy with cigarette butts, fast food containers, chicken bones, and liquor bottles. Someone had been living in our car. We complained profusely to the attendant, who had already received his money for renting out our vehicle for the weekend. He said no charge, and after a thorough cleaning, we drove back to Guelph. So that's just one of the little, and that's why I say it's, you know, a good part of it is memoir. And I started writing this and I've written, I've written two, I mean, I'm not trained as an academic. I have a a BA in studio art, but this all evolved in my career. I wrote two academic books with McGill Queens University Press and co-authored another. And I wrote this and I thought they're never going to take this. Never. (laughs) So they're just, they're never going to take this. So I discovered that they have something called a footprint series. I looked it up and I thought, oh, well, this is interesting. It's something to do as history, as memoir. And I looked up and I saw Elizabeth Waterston, who is the only Guelph person I recognized. She is Professor Emerita, uh, expert on Lucy Maud Montgomery. She's now 97 years old. She had a book in this series called Blitzkrieg and Jitterbug, my experiences during wartime. And I thought, that is amazing. And it was from her journals of when she was at McGill. And I thought, well, if Elizabeth can have a book published in there on that topic, I'm going to send it in. So I sent it in and they accepted it. And I think to their credit that they, you know, they're looking at a, a new way of history that is, you know, as I say, Hope to say it. You're a historian, not boring, and <laughs> and you know, so fact fact orientated. But you know, can be a blend of actual stories about who these people are. There's many stories about my touring our Inuit art collection, which uh, Inuit drawing collection, which which what the gallery is mostly known for internationally. I toured it to four continents, and uh, you know, gave lectures all over the world on it. Uh, and how these things sort of happened and how they were supported. So it's, it, you know, it, it's more intimate way of talking about collections and how it really happens. You, you really get a sense of it from that excerpt, certainly, right? Like that, that that's what the book is about. And, and I agree with you that history is really about storytelling and, and telling stories in whatever format that is. And the personal memoir style, given your very uh, close relationship with this institution for over 40 years, it makes sense to tell the story of the institution through your voice, through your perspective. That, that just seems reasonable to me. And it, it can create, as you note, a more entertaining way to tell the story and a way that maybe the audience can attach themselves to through you as opposed to a inst- or an institution, right? It's, it's about the personal. So I agree with you there a hundred percent. So Judith, if people want to pick up a copy of the book, uh, how would you direct them to do that? And if people wanted to actually go visit, if you're in the region and you want to go visit the museum, 
uh, one is it open right now? And and uh, if not, uh, in normal times, uh, what is the best way uh, to to go visit some of the uh, the collection? Well, of course, it's uh, just closed this week, uh, according to the new COVID uh, um, you know regulations. But uh, yes, it's open uh, you know every day except uh, Monday uh, noon to five, and I said it's free, it is free admission. And uh, so, you know, it's uh, quite easy to uh, to get to. And if anyone wants the book, what's uh, what's the best way to pick it up? I would suggest a phone the bookshelf in Guelph. They they just told me they sold a, a quite a few copies, which pleases me. The bookshelf in Guelph is well known across Canada. Uh, they you can buy it there, and they will mail it to you. That's the absolute easiest way. Or you can go to your Amazon has it. You can go to your local bookstore and order it. You can go to the McGill Queen's uh, uh, University Press catalog, and you can order it that way. And certainly encourage everybody to do it. Again, the book, uh, The Making of a Museum. Judith Nasby, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Thank you, Sean. So there you have it. My conversation with Judith Nasby, and I thank her for joining me all the way from South Carolina. Again, the book is The Making of a Museum from our friends over at McGill Queens University Press, part of the Footprint series, as Judith mentioned. So be sure to check that one out. So that will do it for this week's episode. Thank you, everybody, for listening. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the podcast wherever it is you get your shows. Do the likes, ratings, comments, all that good stuff. Helps grow the show, helps other people know what we got going on here. This is episode 199 of the History Slam. So the next one coming at you is going to be number 200. And I thank everybody for sticking with us for so long as we pass, I don't know if it's a milestone, but at least another round number on the show. Of course, if you want to let me know what you want to hear, either on that episode or on future episodes, please do reach out, historyslam at gmail.com, or you can find me on Twitter at the Sean Graham. And as always, head on over activehistory.ca, all of our past episodes under the podcast tab, and some great written material that you can catch up on over there on the website. So, so thank you, everybody, for listening. We will be back with you again next week. But until then, if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.